Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. And boy, do I mean that this month. This month's movie is 1944's Double Indemnity, and I'm Matt in Buffalo. And this is Matt in Arizona. And yeah, we got a Stone Cold classic this month. Man, I told you. I mean, let's jump straight into it because I kind of can't wait to start talking about this one. I had some awesome options to pick from this month, if I may say so. So going through it really quickly, Double Indemnity, 1973's Mean Streets, you know, the first like true Martin Scorsese movie, right? Two Alfred Hitchcock films, 1937's The Girl Was Young and I Confess, and also a Robert Wise uh, film, 1959's Odds Against Tomorrow. And I was like hemming and hawing. There's some great stuff in there, but really... I overthought it. I had to go with Double Indemnity, which we'll get into, but I put this God tier top two films of all time for me. Maybe not favorites. I always draw that distinction, but I think these are top five greatest films of all time. Double Indemnity here. We'll get into it. But yep, I picked Double Indemnity. Let's go through all the level setting, right? The baselining. Not a huge financial success, so you're not going to see this crazy high in the box office of 1944, but you had your Going My Way, Meet Me in St. Louis, Since You Went Away, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, so on and so forth, right? And then at the best picture, I will go out on a limb and say it was the utterly forgettable Go On My Way, (laughs) not too fondly remembered, Uh, or, you know... It's not a Stone Cold classic. That one best picture, but up there with, you know, nominated with it was Double Indemnity, Gaslight, arguably two more relevant movies that stood the test of time, right? Since You Went Away and Wilson. I've actually heard of Double Indemnity and Gaslight, which is what I can say for the actual winner. And we'll we'll get into it, but it was fairly represented. at the Academy Awards Double Indemnity, it got Best Picture nomination, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Writing Screenplay, Best Cinematography for Black and White, Best Music, Best Sound. Uh, all those earned, arguably all of them could have been winners. But if you go into the politics back then, studios would only back one horse and they decided to not back Double Indemnity. They went in a different direction. Um which is unfortunate, but, you know, what can you do? But there you go, Matt. Oh, actually, for what it's worth, Going My Way was another Paramount pitcher. Double Indemnity uh-huh. was. So they picked, you know, the old studio stuff. They told all the studio members at Paramount, vote as a block for Going My Way. Right. Woof. Okay. There you go, Matt. Well... I mean, one, one's in the Library of Congress now and one isn't, so. <laughs> and every AFI film. So let me go, like, a little bit of the background. Let's cover the background before we start walking through the plot. My background was I saw this in high school, and I must have seen it, oh, 20 times since. I just love it. it this is such an important movie historically. It's crazy, crazy entertaining to me. It struck me as a teenager as just being fantastic. It's only kind of gotten better over time. It's nuanced. You just get more and more stuff from it. I love it. And I'm super excited to share it with you because what your background is, you had not seen this coming into this. 
I no, view I hadn't it, right? seen it. I hadn't seen it, but of course I've heard of it. I know who Fred McMurray is. I know who Barbara Stanwyck is. Um, I knew it's on all these lists, and it, it and I love a good film noir. And this was one that I meant to get to for a long time. I just never had the opportunity until now, which is why when you had that list last month, I was really pulling for double indemnity. Yeah, we we both ended up pulling for that. So not just, you know, a great film noir, arguably one of the first, one of the most important foundational ones of it. Certainly, you know, American cinema, you know, has a French name, but it's very much an American genre. And this is the one that set so much of that tone, the um, the the cinematography um sits i forget the uh, sites rather uh, i forget his first name um john sites he was their top cinematographer at that point i think this kind of dictated so much of the film language mm-hmm. of film noir going forward oh it's fantastic oh yeah i mean you start to see the 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 seeds for what become the stereotypes later on Oh, like tons of this movie is just all the stereotypes, even down to like, is it one of the first movies that had the moment of tension and the car won't start kind of a beat? Like, is this the patient zero of that? I don't know, but it's really early and like those type of cliches that you just see all over the place, right? Yeah. So, all right, why don't we start walking through? It opens with the very memorable soundtrack. I don't know how many of our movies that we've done in the older era have the score that really kind of stuck out to me. This one absolutely did. Set a very ominous tone at the beginning, very heavy, kind of a dreadful um, score to it while you're seeing the shadow of (laughs) the... uh, limping broken leg man approaching right yeah great great opening sucked me right in and i knew this of course you know most of these noirs start with uh the end and then we narrate back to the beginning yeah it's the framing device from the book too so give credit there this was based on a what 1938 novel something like that by kane which I did read, of course, in preparation for this, about one, two uh, sittings worth of a novel. But yeah, that had that framing device. It was a little bit different. We can get into some of those differences. But yep, starts out set in 1938 for whatever reason. I'm not sure why the movie was set slightly in the past, filmed in 44, right? Takes place in 1938, same as the book. But Walter Neff, the Fred McMurray um, is speeding through the streets in downtown L.A. in the middle of the night, stumbles into his office building, gets out the dictaphone. Awesome bit of equipment. I, I love it. Uh, and starts to make basically his confession to his, you know, the real love interest of the movie, uh, Barton Keys. Right. Um <laughs> That, no, I, I mean, that relationship is fantastic. Yeah. They even say, I mean, they even say I love you to each other a couple of times. Right. And I don't think the reading is, you know, we talk about it in the, the coded movies. Like if there's oh, no, anything it's, it's, there. It's not, no. it's not something it's like a platonic that. One. It, it, no. it's, it's a friendship one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it's Fred McMurray, Fred McMurray dictating to Edward G. Robinson, which for my money, this is my favorite part uh, that I am familiar with him doing. 
like I said, this is God tier. Fred McMurray, Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck, and uh, Edward G. Robinson. Just awesome through here. So it starts out, you can see that he's been shot right through the shoulder. Probably not a mortal wound, uh, but it's draining him, as we'll see throughout the film. So, okay, flashback ensues. Let's get into the story proper now. So about a year earlier, I think the timeline's a little bit up for debate. They kind of jumped through it a little bit. Uh, but probably about a year earlier, Walter meets, uh, he's out, he's a traveling salesman, right? Uh, working the LA area, selling all sorts of insurance. Right. And he goes to a house. He has to try and um, catch up on some expiring auto insurance. And he goes to the Diedrichsen's house, goes in, and we are pretty much immediately introduced to uh, Phyllis Diedrichsen. Barbara Stanwyck at the top of the stairs, a really iconic image of the film, right? When you look at stills of this publicity stills, it's her at the top of the stairs, only wearing a towel. So fresh out of the bath, fresh out of nude sunbathing, maybe. Don't I was going to say it had to be pretty racy for 19, the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at it and it's, um, they don't make a point of it, but she's certainly not wearing anything under this towel. And he's looking up at her well, in one of the also, first. Oh, go on. Also, too, I mean, studying the, the tone of the character, she's not wearing anything under the towel. And she sees him come in and she's really not all that bothered. Mm hmm. And wearing um, immediately obvious anyone to anyone at the time. It took me, I didn't know the first time I'd never see wigs and, you know, I'm a, I'm completely blind to seeing toupees out in the wild, but she is wearing a very obvious, uh, blonde wig, which apparently, you know, contemporaneous reviews say it's the worst part of the movie, but apparently it was a complete 100% decision, directorial character decision to have her be really obvious in this hair to give the impression that she is really phony, very mm -hmm. superficial and trashy, basically, which was a little bit lost on me because I didn't know Barbara Stanwyck wasn't didn't have that hair. Right, I did but, initially. Yeah. But like, I didn't think about it, really. But I knew she was because I've seen her in other stuff. She's a she's a brunette. Yeah. Right. So she comes down and immediately you're getting the impression of the Walter and Daff character, which is really interesting. I love this depiction of the fast talking kind of a sleazeball, like a wise guy kind of a mentality. Well, yeah, I love his inter his introduction is what, what, like two Fs like in Philadelphia, the story. Yep. Walter Neff with two, two Fs like in Philadelphia. I'm like, it's one of the greatest lines ever in yeah. anything, right? It's just like, oh, you're a salesman. Yeah, like and a sleazy one seemingly, right? So he basically also just forced himself into this house. Like when the housekeeper opens the door, he lets himself in entirely. I mean, force kind of. But like I said, when, you, when Barbara Stanwyck sees him, she's pretty nonplussed and nonchalant about it well not force he doesn't like shove her he's just the very very pushy sales yeah. guy right no 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 i mean i i got what you meant but 
but from what I see, like she doesn't seem to mind. Well, you know, I'm always interested in since this is all a framing device of a guy giving a confession, basically, spoiler alert, a unrefutable version of the story. Oh, do you think there's a there's an unreliable narrator thing going on? I think the broad sweeps probably not. I think some of it's in like character nuances. Right. So like one of the things I'm interested, I was really interested in this reviewing of like, when did he fall out of love? If he ever was actually with Phyllis in this movie, right. In in this rewatch, it's like that kind of a thing of like that kind of a character kind of lying to himself um, thing. So it's like, I don't think anything's overtly wrong, but I could see in his retelling how this is just an immediate sleazy kind of attraction to each other. So she comes down, she's wearing this anklet and it is an immediate, just an immediate, like sexually charged, um, flirtatious innuendo strewn, discussion about the husband's insurance right she's warning him that there's a there's a speeding laws in this uh state he asks how fast was he going she goes oh i would say doing about 90 yeah and she's not like saying don't do this she's just like all right slow it down a little bit man you know i'm gonna sleep with you just like give me a couple more minutes we just met it's like that just like right off the bat right yeah, for, I was gonna say from they're they're both it's coming from both parties too. Yeah, right. So that's like the I don't know if it's if there's anything there, but just that I love the uh, you know unreliable narrator cliche or trope in in books and movies, what have you. It just makes me be overthink. But it's what is in it for him to lie in this it's oh she was all over me too it just wasn't me he's trying to bring her down a little bit in this that he's not totally culpable in this he perhaps so but also too i mean it doesn't take her very long once they start talking you know quote unquote business to start asking about accident insurance so i mean i think she also saw him like when he walks through the door and talks about who he is you know opportunity well yeah but so i get it's also a movie of course right and this movie does not overstay it's well welcome it's very tight but it also is like wow she jumps to asking questions about (laughs) accident insurance really quickly to a just a guy who came in and yeah he's flirting a bunch so it does make me wonder is there was there a little bit extra meetings in here that he didn't want us to know? Did he go back there and this actually take place over a couple meetings? I don't know. I, I don't think it substantially cha- changes the movie at all, but it's just, man, it's going quick. Yeah, she mentions, you know, uh, you know, all these different insurance. How about accident insurance? You know, I'm very hurried about worried about my husband and all that kind of a thing. And immediately Neff susses this out of, well, I know what this is about, right? I'm not going to have any of this. And he puts on a bit of a show and walks out, right? Yeah. So pretty quickly afterwards, now, I forget now, just in the the rewatch of this, 
at what point does he have to get his mind off of this and then goes bowling? <laughs> Was that I after forget. this or after the next uh, next conversation? I think it's after the next conversation because I want to say after this is when we go back to the um, the insurance agency and we we get introduced to the Edward G. Robinson character and his uh, gut instinct for sussing out uh, fraudsters in insurance claims. <laughs> Yeah, so because that I I just didn't want to miss the bowling beat because I just thought that was just such a quaint 1940s thing. And it was just not inadvertently hilarious, just like a wonderful little moment in the movie that just doesn't need to be there. Right. But anyhow. Yeah. So he goes back to his office and that's where we're introduced to the Edward G. Robinson character, the one that he's dictating to. Right. And you get like, there's some real good comedy throughout this too, right? So he walks in on keys, basically just tearing apart this country rube dude who set his uh, truck on fire to collect on insurance. And he's just giving this guy just a wild dressing down, down to the point where he's got the guy so beaten that he's he's instructing him how to open a door, turn the handle boy, you know, and pull on it. Oh, it's just... It's fantastic, right? Yeah, I already love this character as soon as we meet him. Oh, just a kind of like absent minded kind of because Neff is always lighting his cigars and stuff for him, but like dangerously competent at what he's doing. Right. Insane, <laughs> insanely good out. at his job. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about there's this little guy in his stomach who always tells him, you know, the gut instinct is just never wrong. He has the sixth sense about, you know, people scamming insurance. Right. And what you see immediately is and I wasn't kidding, like the true the only the only healthy relationship in this movie. Right. Basically, yes. is these two guys is Neff and Keys. They really enjoy each other's company i think they both really respect each other well and, and neither one they of them is, they love each other yeah neither one is using the other which is not true for any of the other relationships in this film yeah every while there are people know it or not every other relationship is transactional right <laughs> in one form or another right so yeah these two guys it's like a, a really great pairing and you can tell they've probably worked together for what 10 years or whatever a was kind of mentioned yeah very long time right and what you kind of see is these guys are the ones more or less running a company for all intents and purposes he's their best salesperson this is the guy who's keeping an eye of the machine and then the senior leadership is just uh, a nepo baby who inherited the company and doesn't know the business to save his life right so you kind of get that whole setting of the, the company that they're working in so i guess then pretty much right or you know later that evening i suppose or pretty quickly afterwards again time is a little wonky with this neff goes back home and he's met at his apartment by Phyllis, right? Well, I thought he go- he goes back to the house a second time, I think, and when wh- and that's where she asks more about uh, oh, true. the accident insurance, and he gets very um, put off, and then goes back home or to the. Go- I think he may go to the, the bowling alley at that point, but then back home. But that's when she comes to visit him, and I, I mean, I was paying attention, 
when Neff leaves the her house the second time, he has all of his stuff with her. But when oh, she yeah. comes, uh, she's claiming that she's there to return his hat. And I was, you know, like I said, I was paying attention. He grabs his hat on the way out. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're correct. For how many times I've seen this, I'm screwing up the uh, the timeline there. Yeah. He goes back and yes, they make a point of showing him putting the hat on and you see the shadow as he's leaving the silhouette of him clearly wearing the hat. So, yes, it's clearly the lie on her part. That is when he has a drink, by the way, has a beer sitting in his car. 1944 then goes for a, a sweet, you know, just bowling trip by himself think things over and then she shows up at the apartment and basically we have the seduction scene the 1944 they absolutely had sex but were not remotely allowed to show anything like that but all the code of him smoking splayed on the couch with her reapplying her makeup yeah right it's like there you go there's your absolute code and if you missed it they absolutely did it there So this is basically, I love the motivation of Neff in this, right? It's, I think, first watch, super superficial viewing of it is he does this for the woman, right? No. Second viewing or whatever, you know, generalities, he does it for the money. Nope. Final My thing is he did it. It's like rope. He did it. And he's been thinking about this for forever. This is the circumstance that fell into his lap. And it's just, I love that. And it's like pretty much right now, I think is when he is like, I'm not doing this for the woman, all this stuff of like, you got a baby right down the line. We'll be together. Everything. I think he's lying to her the rest of this time. Well, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to say that I'm a a sharper viewer than you because you've seen this way more than I have. But like, I I didn't get that he was doing it for her or the money the first time. I got it. He's an equal opportunity opportunist, just like she is. I mean, like, yeah, he may get the woman and the money in the end, but he's doing this for his own ego. And I think he can he thinks he can stay involved with her because he thinks that he can handle her, which is his fatal flaw. Well, this is the me watching it from a teenager type of, you know, relaying it. It's like, oh, superficial. No, as you're getting more and more mature, you're kind of seeing these different layers to it. Like, yeah, they're kind of all there. The money is probably the secondary goal. The girl is probably tertiary goal. But the first one is it's his ego. He's intellectually stimulated by this. And you're right. It's just like rope. It's it's because he can. Yeah. And it's. So I read the book, right? The movie is vastly superior to it. The book is, oh, is it really? solid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The The interesting thing is Kane wrote the book. Raymond Chandler, who did The Big Sleep and is a novelist of credit to, a, you know, of his own. He came in and he hates Kane's writing, because if you read the novel, it's all just plot, just the facts, ma'am. Just plot, 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 plot. Chandler comes in and does like the character and the humanity kind of layering to it and all that kind of a stuff. So the bones are more or less there in the novel, Um, but it's so much more rich in the in the show. 
the the plot of this is is good, but the characterizations are what makes this movie to me. Right. And but one of the few things that I thought was kind of laid out, I'll go air quotes, maybe a little bit better because it's in a book, right? You get more space to be in a guy's head and it's not just all narration. It was him talking like, well, imagine you're working at a casino running the roulette wheel and you just see people losing their fortune more and more and more. And you just get so beaten down by this. What is the harm? Who am I actually hurting, ripping the casino off like crazy? Yeah. And then he relates that. And you see, there's like one blurb in the, the movie about it. But basically, he says in the insurance, we're ripping people off. You just see so many people die in horrible ways. It just deadens you so much of like, why not rip off the system that's ripping off others? Well, yeah, right? and like so you said, like, I mean, you the, get that. The head of the actual company is like an incompetent nepo baby who's there by privilege. So, I mean, we're, ri- we're in the end. He's you know ripping a couple of rich assholes off, right? And in a lot of ways, the Neff character reminds me of my dad. In a lot, in a lot of ways, <laughs> because my dad was like an accountant and. More nuanced than that, he would probably kill me uh, if I heard him just simply refer to him as an accountant. But he would go into companies and do audits and find all the embezzlement and everything like that. And it was just so ingrained into him whenever we would go out somewhere or he would always tell me like how people are ripping off money at whatever place. And I'm like, he must be thinking about this stuff all the time of how to game the system because he just knows it so much. This is what they'd be doing. And I'd be like, dad, I'm pretty sure it's the 16 year old idiot working at Arby's just doesn't know how to run the cash register. I don't think he's skimming from the top, but then Walter Neff here is like, Oh, this is how these people could steal from the, uh, the system. And he puts these notes in, right? So the guy who burnt down the truck, Neff put in a note saying this guy is going to do this. He could foresee it all and he could do all this. So he's been keeping all these ba- these tricks in his head. He's just probably sits at night thinking about like, this is how I would do it. Right. Um, and just like purely academic exercises in his head. And then it falls and in his lap. It's probably, you know, it doesn't turn out this way, but it's probably, he's probably the one person that could go toe to toe and, and, potentially fool Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. So that's like one part where I, I don't know, maybe I have to think about it more is, is he doing it in some way to get one over on his friend to, to, to best I him? I, no, like, I don't is, think it's, I don't there think it's out of, there? no, I don't think it's out of malice, but I think what no. I'm saying is I think it's, it's um, an academic if, competition, if, if, an academic competition. And, is Paul, like I said, because he's worked so closely with him, because they have that kind of relationship, he's probably the only one who could realistically do something like that mm-hmm. and get around, get around him. Yeah. Because we, we see with all these, with all these other, you know, fraud claims, they're all amateurs compared to him. Right. Low key. One of my favorite scenes is them talking about the job proposition he has for Neff later on. Right. And it really gets to the heart of that stuff. Also, we kind of skipped over. It's an important beat. But at that other meeting, we're introduced to um, Phyllis's stepdaughter. 
I'm blanking on her name. Lola. Uh, Lola, right. Uh, we're introduced to her. Um, young adult, 16, 18, somewhere in there. Yeah, and, mid to late teens. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping more of an adult, because at least in the book and kind of hinted at here, kind of like there could be some relationship stuff that was streamlined. Yeah, and I not would really say she's movie. probably like, I, no, but I would say she's probably like 18 or 19. Yeah. Um, so she asked for him to have a ride back. Right. So we're introduced to her and we're introduced to her really angry, kind of sleazy ex medical student boyfriend who's kicking around at the periphery of this movie at points. Right. So she's basically put in like into the mix as a character in the story with the scumbag uh, boyfriend who uh, doesn't like what uh, Neff's name or face. Well, we're also introduced to a very important plot point here, and it makes me, not that I already wasn't suspicious of Phyllis, but it, it, it caught my ear. When they're having that scene in Neff's apartment and they're kind of hatching out the plan, she mentions how um, she used to be this guy's uh, wife, previous wife's nursemaid and mm-hmm. that she, she died under certain circumstances. And immediately I already jumped to the fact that, oh, she killed this woman in some way. Yeah. And it's also mentioned in one of those discussions that when she originally married um, um, Mr. Dietrichson, he was uh, wealthy at that point and he's not lost all of his money, but he's like down significant amounts of wealth in this oil business that he's been getting into. Right. In and, the what, oil and whatever wealth he does have is, is willed going to be willed away to Lola. She doesn't get right. uh, Phyllis is not going to get any of it. So that's all peppered in here as well. Right. So um, now that the pieces are kind of all in play and the motivations are kind of there, um, they are hatching a plan of, well, first off, we need to get the guy tricked into um, signing for uh, life insurance that he is unaware of. Right? right. And we need some witnesses to start. You know, corroborating a lot of the nuances to the story. Right. So they basically hatch a plan of he's going to come back to the house. They're going to talk about all these insurance. He's going to push it really hard. And then probably be rebuked by it. But he needs the witnesses to do this. So he comes to the house and through narration, this is one of the elements of the movie that kind of drops a little bit. The book, again, I'm only going to call out the couple little slightly weakish things Mm -hmm. is guilt is a bit more of a primary kind of a theme throughout the book. They don't necessarily have a lot of guilt. It's paranoia for sure in the the movie, but not so much guilt about killing somebody. But you see a little hint of it is like for Neff, the step too far was his daughter was going to be, uh, you know, Deidreson's daughter, Lola, was going to be the witness for them basically scheming to kill him in the room. Right. So they go through all the, the show. He's giving him the hard sell. It's interesting, Dietrichson, they're doing their best to make him seem like a bastard because uh, you have to sort of root for Neff to kill him, I guess, in the movie. So they try to make him really gruff, kind of nasty whenever possible um, to Phyllis, to Neff just trying to do his job in theory. Um, 
questionable kinda, how <laughs> successful at it. Kind of to Lola too about the boyfriend. Yeah, but we saw that boyfriend. He's a bastard. No, we not before this. <laughs> well, we will. We will. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're jumbling a couple of those scenes around. But um, he doesn't want it. And Neff does the horrible. <laughs> they they go a little bit more elaborate how this gets more convenient or, you know, convincingly done in the book because it's just kind of facts and all that kind of stuff. But movie streamlined. Oh, we need a second copy sign for, you know, record keeping here. Can you sign this one, too? Let me just hold the paper over the part that says accident insurance. Right. And he signs it. They basically give each other the wink. I Done. mean, you right. know what? Not not out of the realm of possibility, because I mean, like people sign things without reading them all the time. Like how many how often how many people actually read those license agreements before you use a computer program? Oh, no, it, it's totally fine. But <laughs> I will just say, if you like a little bit of the minutia of the procedural, like this is how we got him to sign something, how he actually pays for it. With, so there's the records of him paying for this accident insurance, right? Without having like her giving, you know, money out of her uh, allowance, allowance and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And how he tricks him back into taking a refund back and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's there's a little bit more procedural elements if you're into like that kind of like old timey stuff that wouldn't really fly easily today kind of a thing, but it's, it's cool. Then that's the scene where they take, you know, Lolo away. Okay. So the plan is basically hatched that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Right. We're going to kill him, but in order to, you know, make good on the double indemnity clause that's in there is it's a way of getting people to sign on and buy this is we'll pay out double if you die under very specific circumstances yeah, a, that are very to, unlikely. Have, yeah, a weird death. Right. Which is for this movie, he has to die on a train. And it's like, oh, I love this stuff where it's like very specific <laughs> type of things. You have to get to very specific circumstances on stuff. And a bit of serendipity is he breaks his leg right before he's planning on attending a college reunion upstate. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's going to be so, the great, wonderful setting for it. So, yeah. So now this guy can conceivably fall off the train because he can't walk. Right. And then this is the stuff that I probably is what made me fall in love with it is like, I love like low tier spy work stuff and procedural things. We've talked about this before, Matt, like the big mission impossible movies with crazy gadgets. Great, wonderful, exciting. I prefer the thing of like low, just clever spy stuff of like drop boxes and secret messages and low tech, lo fi kind of stuff. Him taking a little note card and putting it in the bell on his phone or on his, um, you know, doorbell to know if anybody came calling stuff yeah. like that. I'm like, Oh, I love this. I love it. So he, this is all the thing where he's just sits in bed with the lights off as he's falling asleep, probably workshopping this way, how to do something for years. Right. Cause he has every detail worked out. Yeah. The, the cards. And then he's going to make sure that, 
his garage guy sees him at certain times of the evening and yeah. He's making phone calls at like the last possible moment from his house, making a big show that I forgot my book. Hey, Night Watchman, can you go get it? And then as soon as he gets back, starts calling again to make sure everybody knows he's at his home. And it would have to be really tight for him to go murder somebody across town. But he totally did. Makes a big show of it. Has probably backup plans. Like I was just in the bath. If he noticed somebody came and rang the door, he was probably going to go to work the next day and say, oh, I had such a wonderful bath at 915 last night. Exactly. No. Right. uh, Stuff like that. And you see stuff like this continue. I mean, like this whole elaborate plan that that seems elaborate, but it's actually pretty simplified. Reminded me a lot of what Ryan Johnson does in Knives Out. So I think like uh, it, it, it carries on. Oh, give me all these simple kind of logic puzzle, murder mystery, you know spycraft I mean? like, all the time. There, yeah. There's that scene in Knives Out where Christopher Plummer is basically explaining to Ana de Armas how to, how to get away with him uh, seeming like he's poisoned. That's what this reminded me of. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, he was a mystery writer, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, the character in novelist. that movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Oh, and that's this exact stuff. It's the Kane. It's the Chandler. It's all that, you know, um, the the Thin Man series, the, um, uh, the Kennel Club murder, all that stuff. I just love it. Of like, uh, how could somebody murder somebody in this locked room? Let's just look for the details. It's just, right. it's lovely, right? So the plan is hatched. Basically, she calls him, lets him know. So Keys pops in, right? Is this the scene where um, he comes in and asks him if he wants uh, the job, or is that after the murder's already happened? I forget. I think that's after the murder's already happened, but I, I'm okay. not sure either. Because Keys is kicking around at this point when she calls him and lets him know that they're leaving he broke his leg right and it's the coded oh no it's 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 before the murder because it's it's during that meeting where she calls and he has to pretend that he's speaking to somebody else and but she's letting him know that the 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 train trip is back on and that he has a broken leg that that so this it's it's before the murder right because this is i think for me maybe the best scene of the movie I mean, it, it's totally debatable, right? But I just love that this is that Keys and Neff scene where Keys comes in and he's in his kind of typical kind of weird demeanor. And he's like, do you want a $50 pay cut? And uh, McMurray's like, what the hell are you talking about? It's like, come work for me. You're the, And it basically is. I love you. I respect you. I, I think you're the only one bright enough here to do this job. Come work with me. And that sales stuff, anyone could do that, which McMurray rebuffs, right? It's it's not, you know, not everybody can do this, but come do this. This is sussing out stuff. Actually work your mental agility. Have a respectable job, a challenging job. Work with me and suss all this stuff out. And it's interesting because it's like I could almost he's I think he was really close to wanting to do it. But just this thing that he's been working for so long, longer than he's known Phyllis. He's now too far into this and his mental exhaustion into it. Yeah. I don't think it's the money, 
I don't think it's the girl. No, I think I it's think the, he wants to do it, right? I think it's at this point pretty much you know the in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, th- that, but I think it's like, well, now I want to challenge, right? Am I better than you in this? Right. So it's like I love this scene because they they just love each other, but he just can't pull back at this point. He's too committed, I think, because this was his last shot of like he could have just stopped it right then, right? But oh, well, it also helps. She, like it also helps that she calls in the middle of this scene too. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's like if she didn't call in this, would he have gone through of it? Would he have t- been talked out of it at that last second? Right? Because it because th- it hits a snag at first because they wanted to do this train thing, and then the guy refused or wasn't going to go on the trip, and so they were dealing. He was dealing with that possibility when he has this conversation with Keys. But then he gets the phone call that A, the train's back on and B, he has a broken leg. So now Mm -hmm. in his mind, the job just became even easier. So just like also, I love that Keys can't be bothered. Like he knows that McMurray's there talking to probably some dame. A woman. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, he knows it's a woman, but probably like a girlfriend or something. And Keys just couldn't give a crap. He's like, just. Just get on with it. All right. I'll, no, I'm not going to leave. I'll listen to your lovey dovey crap, but just come on, get over with, get it over with. And it's just the great coded kind of one sided controlling of information of like, oh, what suit are we wearing? So McMurray can wear the appropriate suit to body double uh, Diedrichson during the, the murder. All that stuff's just, you know, really great. Right. So, okay. Here we go off to the, uh, the murder. Murder. Basically, the idea is get him into the car. He, Neff, sets all of his alibi stuff in place. Perfect thing. He slips out. Nobody sees him. He gets up to the Dietrichson's house. This is maybe the hardest bit to swallow of the movie, but I'm going to totally let it go. He's hiding in the back seat of the uh, the car as they're driving off. Right. Um, you know, Phyllis sees him, but Dietrichson doesn't. They're driving through. You get a little bit of the taste of Diedrichson just being like, I don't know, unpleasant. He has a little joke about like, you know, don't tell me what to do, woman, about like walking without his crutches. My other leg will just get shorter, too. And it's like, I don't know. I I never quite dislike him enough to feel no, like he's, kind he's of rooting like for the guys. Ab- he doesn't come off as the absolute monster that Barbara Stanwyck describes him as. He's just really kind of a dick. I mean, even that's kind of a stretch. He's just like not the most pleasant person to be around. (laughs) Also, he saw him after he did a whole day's work in an oil field. Uh, And now some sleazy insurance salesman's hard selling him on a bunch of shit he doesn't want. Like, yeah, I'll be. And then my no girl, no good daughter's out messing with this angry asshole. Right. He's kind of of a dick. He's kind of, you know, crabby and crotchety, but hardly a monster. Nope. So they go down a dark road and the agreed upon signal is three horns and you just get, well, one, you probably couldn't see a ton of it due to the, uh, the code at the time. Uh, but with three honks, the camera just locks on Phyllis. Yeah. Close up of Barbara Stanwyck and you hear him, uh, struggle and basically get strangled, uh, breaks his neck, <laughs> right? Well, same. I mean, strangled it slash breaks his neck. Well, it, it's just like a little distinction because that's even more brutal because it's like 
Oh, I fell off a train and I strangled. No, I fell off a train and snapped my neck. He had to break the dude's neck over the crutch was like the No, I knew that. I knew that because, I mean, you have to make it look like an injury that you would get from blunt force. Mm -hmm. But just like as your husband's neck is being snapped right next to you, she has like, it's a loaded view, right? It's... You can't tell what's going through her head. It's she just has, uh, great bit of acting, thing. right? She has no expression, and it—you know—I I already think this woman's kind of a sociopath, and this is playing into it. Oh yeah, million percent, right? Um, oh, uh, spoiler alert for the book—it probably goes way too far. She's like a serial killer in that killing children, multiple children for like debatable um you know benefit like not even like financial gain she probably killed be, like half a dozen people that might be a little over the top but i definitely think that she did kill that wife oh 100 percent. she did she did in the book you know but basically she allowed no, but what i'm her saying is that die. i get yeah. that in the movie oh yeah no she killed her in the movie too yeah totally totally uh because at that time she killed him to get the husband's money and then he didn't waste it. He just didn't maintain it. Right. Didn't, didn't turn, have the didn't lifestyle the way that she, she wanted. thought it would. Yeah. Her investment Basically. wasn't paying off. Right. <laughs> so brutal, brutal murder off scene. I don't think she was completely expressionless. I think there is some very subtle kind of acting there. It's great. Right. It's another like iconic image of the movie is but her just dead eyed staring. My point, my point is like, it's super, it's certainly not like something, a look that, that shows any sort of bother or remorse. No. And then it's, but it's also not over playing it. Like, you know, grinning, like some, some comic book villain either. No, that's right. What I mean. it's, 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 it's just socio- awesome. It's sociopathic. It's a flat affect. Yep. All right. So plan is to haul him, dump him in the trunk wrap up um, Neff's leg and just some bandages with a casual inspection, make it look like a, uh, a cast. And now he's going to take his spot onto this train. So Phyllis kind of runs a little bit of interference with the, the red cap porters. He goes in, they make a little bit of a show, make it very obvious that she's leaving him. He's getting on there, but not making a point of anyone to actually see his face. Yeah, he's he's, I think, he's, dro- he's drawn the hat over and he's always looking down. Right. Very, I don't know, I, nice tension growing here. All very, very believable. I think all this stuff is like immensely plausible to me, I think. You know, and nothing other than like minor, minor stuff. Nothing ever jumps in like, oh, I don't believe this. This would never happen kind of a thing, right? So he limps through the uh, train, making an effort to probably be seen, right? Goes to the back to have uh, some fresh air. And then the plan is he's going to just jump off the train and, you know, stash the body well, and, wherever he jumps off. And right? thinking, thinking he'll be alone at that, at that back of the car. Right. So he goes out there and there's this great reveal of a little guy down there having a nice cigarette and some fresh, uh, fresh air. And it's like, oh, the tension just kind of ratcheted up in this movie quite a A, bit. Right. A little guy who I have to say, like I was, you know, I looked at him and I heard his voice. I was like, I know this guy from something. He's the asshole psychiatrist from Miracle on 34th Street that tries to get Santa Claus fired and charged with lunacy. (laughs) 
I think it's like how many times did that movie come up in, in our podcast episodes? It seems to come up more often than not. There's always a connection back to that. It feels like Miracle on 34th Street comes up a bunch. Yeah, no, I didn't place that. Um, but no, it, very interesting, um, kind of tense moment. Neff is making a real effort to keep his face away from him. And it's really important because it's going to really mess up their plan. If he has to jump off this train two miles down from where the car is going to meet him, right? right? This will absolutely mess up their plan. And it's just so fun in these movies. How like all of a sudden you find yourself accidentally rooting for a murderer and two horrible people, right? Yeah. Now this guy just literally broke an innocent man's neck two minutes ago and I'm terrified he's about to get caught. Right. Just like funny thing. These movies do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So he tricks the guy in to go, Hey, I forgot my cigars in the back. Hey, I, I got a broken leg. Could you go get it basically? But he also tricks the guy into doing it for him. So he doesn't plant the seed goes off. Neff jumps off. Phyllis is there waiting. She, they bring the dead body over toss it on the track and then they get into the car. And then apparently according to, again, I mention this every time I'm half convinced the trivia on all old movies is apocryphal, but as the story goes, they film this scene, they broke for lunch. Wilder, the director gets in his car to go grab a sandwich or whatever. The car doesn't start. And he's like, say they come back and he's like, rebuild that set. We're redoing that scene. And it's Phyllis and Neff are in the car. All right, baby, let's get out of here. The car doesn't start, right? And it's just that extra beat of tension. They eventually do get it started. They go back. Perfect crime. He gets back to his house. Nobody was any of the wiser. None of the nobody called. Nobody checked on, uh, popped into the office. He cleans up a few extra uh, alibis. I'm going to go yeah, get something I was to gonna eat. Say, I was going to say, he, he, he gets home and he's seen again. Make sure he's seen again by the garage guy. Right. So, Mr. Prosecutor, how do you think this actually went? I mean, it, it was great, except for the fact that, like, I and I noticed this, too, as, as uh, this was happening. Fred McMurray is a very tall man, and her husband mm-hmm. was not. So. Is that kind of a thing that you do cover to base, right? Like, do you close that gap of like, oh, the victim was five foot four. Does anybody think to ask the witness, was he six foot one? Right. It's I, like, I, I don't like, that's a thing like me watching. I wasn't pulled out of the movie by a little detail like that. Cause you almost go like, would he, would anybody have thought to even ask that? Like, is anybody thinking there's a body switch going on here? I mean, maybe this is just my prosecutorial mind, but the fact that the 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 victim doesn't match what the eyewitness saw cause for raising a, an eyebrow at the very least. We're going down a rabbit hole, but at this point, nobody like the police close it up really quick. There's no reason to think there's foul play. It's the insurance people who are at the financial hook. So if somebody's just dead on the side of a track with a broken neck, do you actually line up those details that closely with a witness? And they are the suits are the same broken leg crutches. Do you no, actually match up on height? No, but as soon as I find that guy that they track down later, the the witness who was there at the 
at the uh, back of the car with him, you know, who saw whoever that was claiming to be the, you know, um, the husband and then sees the actual picture of the husband in the paper. That's when, uh, that's when I think you start building a case, at least for suspicion. Well, I guess you're more of a Barton Keys than the L.A. cops in this uh, story. So it's part of my job. <laughs> Credit to you. <laughs> so this is also right immediately. I think they're starting to have that paranoia with each other. Right. It's um, there is one awesome line in the um, in the book that needed to be in this. Like Kane didn't write um, James Kane didn't write like you know, metaphor or even get all that crazy with his prose. But there is one part that needed to be in the movie. As far as I'm concerned, and it stuck out at me like a sore thumb in the book. Cause right around this time, it's like, that's all it takes. One drop of fear. That's all it takes. One drop of fear to curdle love into hate. And that's exactly, I think now that this has all become very real, I don't think Neff and all them experience guilt. They start getting fear. Right. And I think they immediately fall out of love. Is there anything to indicate they ever hook up again after the murder? Right. Because uh, it's now stay away. We got to be apart for a while. Yeah. Right. No, I don't think they do. And as a matter of fact, I think he starts to get more fearful than she does. Oh, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, well, you said it yourself. She's dead inside. <laughs> she's, she's, not... dead, she's dead inside. But like on the meeting, the, on the surreptitious meetings that they have afterward, where, where Neff thinks that this is going wrong and he's he's right. I mean, yep. her response is basically like, don't be such a pussy. Let's go through with it. Right. But the thing is, it's like they for a window, at least before the suspicion starts coming up. They probably could have like had meetup hookups and stuff, but maybe Neff but is like, already done with it. Uh, but I was going to say Neff is so committed to doing this, you know, as he says throughout the whole movie, straight down the line, that I don't think he would risk having another encounter while this until the case is closed and they pay out the money. Well, that, but also I don't think he had any interest in it anymore. I think as soon as he did it, it's like the the sex elements out the window. I think I mean, he ends up wanting revenge on it, but I think that's more like the momentum that he feels like he has to do. But I think now that he is has the fear, the paranoia in this that turns off the sexual relationship element of their relationship. I think it's now down to money. And just getting away with it, right? Money's even secondary. I don't know. It's maybe a distinction without a difference. It's just that part's now gone, as far as he's concerned in the in the story, right? Or it feels like I it. I think it's de- I think it's debatable. I think it's more gone on her end than it is on his. I don't think it was ever there on oh. her end to begin with, but you know. Oh, she says as much at the end. Yeah. No, you know he he literally did what he needed to do, right? So okay. Back to the plot now. So this is where Norton, right? Norton is the 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 president of the company. He brings everybody in and it's just, oh, man, we're going to have to pay through our nose on this. And Keyes kind of calls him out on. He's like, you're stuck and you know it. (laughs) Right. Uh, But he or Norton has his big plan. He's going to bring in 
uh, Phil is in here and he's like, just hold your beer. I'm going to, I'm going to show you how the insurance business works. And it is a great scene. That guy's speaking mannerism. I I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but he was driving me nuts. He reminded me of somebody else, but I I couldn't put my finger on uh, who Norton seemed like. Uh, But anyhow, in comes Phyllis. She's in her black morning gown and Norton's trying to raise. She's got the veil over yeah. the cap yeah yeah and norton's raising this tension of like no i don't believe we'll be paying out for you see and you think the the shoe is going to drop that it's like murder he's like it's suicide and <laughs> phyllis just acts it up like i can't believe this and then you can basically see keys just doing the figurative the head slap of like oh Right. This amateur idiot. Right. And it's like the meeting goes to shit. Basically, everybody, Phyllis is like, you know what? I'm going to see you in court over this. And it's basically following through of what. Well, no, see what I love is that, again, she doesn't have much of a reaction, but I can see the wheels turning in her head. The moment he says it's a suicide, she's like, oh, good, I can play this up. And he has no idea that it's actually a murder. So, you know, it's again, it provides her an opportunity to keep the facade going. Oh, and Norton sounds exactly like Graham Chapman from the Monty Python from Monty Python <laughs> when he's in character as like a, you know, elitist moron. Um, he sounds exact, exactly like Graham Chapman. That's who I was thinking. Sorry, go on. And then I, I love after he left, he uh, Phyllis leaves that he just launches into this thing of how he's convinced that it's suicide and we'll be able to show him and. I just love keys is like, of course it's not fucking suicide. Oh, that, that dialogue that, uh, Robinson goes in, that's verbatim from the book. And when I was at a park with my kid playing on, you know, the jungle gym and all that, I'm sitting there reading it and I can hear Edward G. Robinson in my head, you know, going, you've never read an actuarial table in your life. Have you, I got 10 volumes on suicide, suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex. And he just goes down through all that. And then, you know, by and poison and then by this kind of poison and that kind of poison, you know, by leaps subdivided off of like uh, under wheels and trucks, and under horses, and, off yeah. of steamboats, but nowhere in there is there a leap from the back of a moving train. And you know how fast it was going at the uh, spot where the body was found 50 miles per hour. Right. And it's like no one in their right mind is going to take a header off of a train going 15 miles an hour and think that they have any expectation that they're going to kill themselves. You're sunk and you're going to have to pay through the nose and you know it. And it's just like he's out of here. And then he takes like the drink that was offered and he just kind of storms out. That's like that, you know, the fuck you. What are you going to do without me? You can't fire me. And you know it. And he just takes off. Right. That being said. He knows something's funny it, up in this. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't sit right with him. It's not he. Does, he knows it's probably not on the level, but he knows for sure it wasn't suicide. Oh, but he loved he loved telling off that oh, yeah. asshole he, he loved, boss, he, right? He loved sticking it to him, but like he walks out and like he knows that something is up, but it's definitely not right. that. So then we're kind of coming up on what's. How easily the most suspenseful part of the movie is. So Neff goes back home. 
And Phyllis calls him from um, the uh, uh, drugstore, grocery mart uh, that is around the corner or wherever, right? That they've been having all their um, secret meetings and planning meetings, which, by the way, so I would have bet any money that that was a set and not an actual supermarket location. Um, there's apparently, you know, production photos of that being uh under armed guard because it was during rationing during World War II, and that was all actual stuff in the supermarket as a weird little bit of trivia. But I think the movie has some subtly a lot more location filming than you would have kind of assumed maybe from that time, which I think helps add a little bit of the credibility to it and less of just like the studio kind of dated feel to it. The movie's got a cool vibe and like that, Supermarkets, part of it, right? Definitely. Uh, but yeah, like I said, we're now rapidly approaching what is the most suspenseful part. Suspenseful part of the film is she calls him from that supermarket, which is establishes like you know just around the corner, or she is just around the corner. Uh, I'm on my way up. Can I? You know, I, I want to be with you. So as soon as he hangs up, way too fast for it to be her. The door rings. And Neff is like, oh, shit, what is this? Goes to the door and it's keys. And he's like, you know, something's been feeling wrong about this this whole time. And Neff is trying to like, he is shitting a brick. And yeah, the, 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 absolute, the absolute last person he wants to see right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, wait, the, the woman who uh, is very suspiciously about the cash in on this uh, is about to show up at the door. Yeah, it's a horrendous situation. You just know what two, three minutes top. She's about to show up and knock at the door. And even if she knocks at the door, there's no way that I'm going to be able to hide this. Right. It becomes right. a Frasier episode, right. Of just sitcom shenanigans. So he's there shitting himself and keys is going, you know, Something just doesn't feel right about this. No, it's not suicide. You know, the bit of the detail here is he broke his leg. If he was insured and just got this fresh new insurance, why didn't he cash in on that? Hmm. And it's like, oh, damn, that's a little bit of a thing we thought was a serendipitous thing in our and, scheme. You know, what's great about that is like it. It's something that you don't think about, but when once he says it, it's like that is a completely logical point that no one thought of. We're riding along with Neff too much. It's like, oh my God, he's right. <laughs> yes. And Keys is like, you know why he wouldn't do that? He didn't know he had insurance. He's like, it's murder. I don't know how. Whoever did this is really smart, but mark my words, Neff, it's murder. And then he starts to turn around to go out and just like, again, just the crazy little spy craft, for lack of a better word. Phyllis shows up and she could hear this. I'm waiting for like Neff to start doing the comedic, like way too loud talking, you know, dropping Keys's name a bunch of times. But she hears this. She knows something's up and she hides behind the door as Keys walks out and does just this little subtle tugs on the doorknob to let Neff know that she's back there. Right. Neff is just like, oh, my God, just that those beats are just fantastic. And it's like Keys is signing off as like, 
I'm going to, I'm going to get it. I'm going to break this. It's a, it's a challenge and he's a bulldog. He's not going to let go of this. Now this is, he's met his match, his intellectual match on this um, murder investigation. Right. Right. And he's going to take it down and they go in Phyllis is asking, like, what does he know? And that's like, he doesn't know anything, but oh my God, he's he's coming down on this. But he's guessing everything. Yeah, he's like, he's getting it all close enough that I'm starting to get really effing worried. This is my justification also not to, like, do anything with you. We need to lay really low and somehow convince them to pay out, right? We just cannot do anything together at this point. So this is like... They didn't do anything there because, uh, you know, she takes off. And isn't this like the the raining scene when he looks out the window? Like all the fear is starting to curdle that love, right? So this is on now his, he goes. On yeah. his end, because like I said, I think oh, yeah. she's there because she's like, you know, when am I getting my money? Oh, well, I mean, at her part, she's probably thinking ahead, right? So quickly after this she's starting to get with zaketti i know That's because lola's because I, boyfriend and i i figured that this is what what's happening but just want to confirm it so that i knew i was on the right track she's totally at this point thinking that she needs a patsy so she that's where this this other guy is going to come in right well it's i'm not entirely what? sure on this because zaketti was going to be brought in what is communicated at one point is well yeah the the beneficiary of a lot of this is going to be lola you can't have her taking any of this money so phyllis was going to you know how he is she says she was basically going to plant the seed that he is or lola's off messing around with somebody and let zaketti kill her Right. And then she's out of the picture. And I wonder if she was going to plant the seed that Lola is with Neff and have Zaketi take them both out. See, see, I think that's the thing is I think that he was going to take them both out. But somehow, if this guy was going to pin the murder on someone, she would make sure it's Zaketi. Um, because at this point, because at this point, she knows that he's sniffing around suspecting murder. And we see, we see, and we see that, and we see that all of her relationships are transactional. Yeah, so well, she, she she would not be above setting that guy up to take the fall. Oh hell no! I mean, she's setting him up to kill her stepdaughter. I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that it's enough. And then, yes, potentially set him up as the patsy of. He helped kill the father with the daughter to for them both to be the beneficiaries, right? Right. And, and then that, they, and then yeah. she got caught cheating with the other guy, and so he killed them both. Right. Like the, the Zacchetti is like the you know you're putting a lot of hopes into that numbskull to kind of clean up a lot of your mess, right? But she's manipulating everyone. She manipulated Lola to an extent, but certainly Neff, certainly her husband. Why not? manipulate him into potentially killing up to two people right so yeah and he's so he's hidden entering into the picture in the background so i think i think he's also so besides all the stuff that we mentioned i also think he's a contingency uh um suspect for her and also uh a, a lay in the meantime right she gets the money uh 
Keyes's uh, uh, mystery is solved because he found a murderer, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So, and I think Neff thinks that Zucchetti is going to kill him too, right? So I think that's something he thinks. I don't think we're making that up. I think that that that's in the movie, right? So we're now, you know, keep separate, avoid even phone calls, et cetera, et cetera, right? So he comes back to the office and lo and behold is the the witness from the train is just sitting at in front of Keyes's office. Neff sees this and he's like, oh, crap. He goes into Keyes like, hey, you wanted to see me? And Keyes like, hey, I'm about to blow this all apart. Just sit and watch this. Right? Watch the, the master at work. You should be working for me. This is fun. Watch this. Uh-huh. And he brings in the guy, the, the witness, and he puts him to it. He's like, so here's the, the, the victim. Was that the guy that you saw in the back of the train? And he's a Medford man, right? He takes his time making his decisions. And basically he confirms with Neff in the room, right? It's some really good tension. Neff is very obviously for the viewer hiding in the back of the room, right. not going out of his way to talk much, but he, you know, confirms that no, the guy I saw on the train wasn't him. Yeah. You know, nothing like him. Yeah. Diedrichson. Right. So, and that's it. You get a little bit more of the keys, just paying off the room. You're like, get out of here. Yeah. Pay, buy whatever you want. Get out of here. See, but like, this is, there and you go. This, this is where my thing starts to pay off because I, the one thing I did notice, aside from the total thing that I missed from keys and that he didn't claim the accident insurance for his broken leg, I did notice that the, the husband and Fred McMurray were not the same body type or height. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Once it's like, oh, we can't t- you now there's enough here. You just can't take anything for granted. Right. Well, Neff's thing was he was hoping that it would be just people taking everything for granted. You don't look too closely. Was that a real cast? All you need is like if no suspicion is raised in this. You know, um, nobody's going to scratch too far below the surface on it. Right. But this which was very hard- fair. This right. witness, though, had an actual interaction with him rather than just a passing glance like everyone else did. Right. And if he wasn't out there, would what would Keyes have to go on next? Right. It would right. be Zacchetti eventually, because what we find is after we're going through this, Neff goes in and listens to his dictaphone and tries to figure out where he's at in this. And at this point, Keyes is like, no, Norton, you know, credit to Norton. He thought maybe uh, Neff was involved in it. Keyes is like, no, we've already looked into that, you know, and it wasn't, he didn't even trust him. They looked into it. Right. He said, we checked his alibis. He had all of his alibis. And what you find is Keyes did, you know, he was about to get married once, but he investigated his fiance (laughs) was a great bit of character detail. So even, Even Neff, who he really loves and kind of respects, he he still had to trust but verify, right? So Neff knew he was kind of out of it. And what we find out is there's been another gentleman caller, and that's uh, Zacchetti. And that's where... Although, before before, oh. before we leave the uh, the scene with the witness, I do like the little detail of after Keyes leaves the room, but he and the witness are still there. It's like the witness does the, you know, I swear I've seen you somewhere before deal. Oh, yeah. Are you a trout fisherman? <laughs> Have you ever been up to Menford? Oh, and it's just like, 
can you get the hell out of this office? I'm about to shit myself again. <laughs> right. Right. It's just, you're waiting for him to go that, uh, and then keys kind of shuffles him out and you're like, Oh my God, I'm still, I'm oops. I'm again, rooting for the murderer to get away from it. Or also in here is this is a lot more in the book. It's in the movie a little bit, but Neff is starting to fall for Lola. So she shows up, right? Her and Zaketi are on the outs. He's too hot headed, whatever. I don't even talk about him. You know, Lola, they go up to the hills and this is where Lola, you know, conveys the story. And it's starting to come together for Neff of like, oh, she's a lot more monstrous than I gave her credit for. Um, She explains that I think she killed my mother, et cetera. Right. And also I saw her (laughs) before the husband died in a black dress uh, pretending to be mourning, right? Yeah, stitching the veil on the hat that she walks into the office with. Right. And uh, Neff is like, I don't even know if that's true, but that's some dynamite shit is basically right. what he says. That's dynamite. I mean, she might be lying, right? Because she wants, she hates her. She might want to try and take her down. But she's, uh, but again, he's had enough interactions with Phyllis at this point where he knows that's not out of the ordinary, that she's something she would do. Oh, no. I mean, I think he thinks it's probably true, <laughs> but he's like, it, if it, even if it isn't, a lot of people are going to believe that. Right. That being said, though, like, I, I guess maybe I was looking at it a little too innocently in the movie, but like it may come off. It may say in the book that he gets a romantic feelings for Lola, but I never really got that in the movie. I got this more of the sense of he takes a a caring relationship to her, but not I think he's a romantic one. I think that's fair. He's attracted to her innocence. Right. I don't think that has to be like a sexual. Right. I think he's I think he's trying to help her avoid getting involved in whatever mess is about to come from this because she's an innocent party and you know Which, had nothing to do with any of this. Yeah, I mean she's also the only innocent person in this cuz even Ke- Keys isn't bad by any means, but he's like so cynical and jaded and you know hard as she's seen every angle on stuff, right? He can't even have a trusting relationship with a fiance. Right. So it's like, even he's not like a super innocent person. She's the only Island of innocence in this movie. So yeah, Neff kind of gravitates towards that. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it's that way in the book, but in the movie, I took it more as like an older brother, younger sister kind of relationship, which does make it a shame that like Zaketi's an asshole in this. He he's being used because she, you know, Phyllis thinks that he's one step away from being able to be a family annihilator. Right. Like with just like a little bit of sex and a bit of a push, he's going to kill an 18 year old, you know, innocent sweetheart that Neff does direct Zaketi back to Lola at the end of this movie. Here's a dime. Go call her. Right. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that was a little kind of off putting of like. No, no, no. That's an okay relationship that we should try and reinforce. But just as an aside, so we get that scene. Keys is like, there you go. Told you they're going to fall apart. Get her on the stand. I beg you, get her on the stand. I'll tear her apart. Right. So at this point, basically, this is that fear. Like the walls Mm -hmm. are closing in. Uh, Neff knows like. Oh shit. Zaketi's there. He's going to be there to kill Lola. He's going to be there probably to kill me. Lola's a wild card in here. Things just get out of control, right? It's 
it was straight down the line to the gas chamber is the line right in the movie it's it's that thing in movies where i get it and i love it where something was like you're in control and then things start slipping away and it's just this crazy sense of dread of like you thought you were in control but now you're wildly out of control and you're at the hands of somebody else and mm-hmm. just that sense of like well, hopelessness is so powerful, I think, in movies. Well, not just that. Like the thing that I love is that not only does he realize that he's out of control now, I think he also realizes once he gets this background on Phyllis that he was never in control to begin with. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And by the way, like the Keys character, I want to go back to it because it's wrapping up towards like right at the end, um, more or less. We get one more scene with that, but that's all Raymond Chandler and Billy and, and Wilder putting that in. Right. Because in the books, it's just like nowhere near the warmth and humanity, like flawed. Right. Like non trusting, like. Very you know, experienced and seen a lot of the evil side of this, but he still has a lot of warmth and humanity. That's not in the book. That's Edward G. Robinson. That's Raymond Chandler. That's Billy Wilder putting that all in. I'll say that like, this is all just from the movie and just the, the scenes earlier there of like those connections, uh, Neff seeing that relationship slip away. Oh, it's kind of heartbreaking, right? In the, the story, we get to see one last kind of punch of that at the end here. Um, but OK, so Neff, I think, realizes, well, there's kind of only one way really out of this. Let me now go kill Phyllis, probably. Right. Um, and then stick it on Zacchetti because he's the one who now took my girl. But I don't think he's super caring about that. It's a means to the end. Right. For him. So basically he says, all right. I'm going to uh, come over. We need to, you know, talk things out one more time. Phyllis, don't underestimate her, you know, bloodlust on this. She's there waiting, planted a gun uh, to yeah. take care of things. Zaketti's going to be on his way over to probably help clean up the mess or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, walk in on her um, sleeping with him and clean up everything, right? So he gets there and it's a great tension scene. He's just slowly going around, closing up the windows, making sure nobody's going to hear it when he starts throttling her, right? Probably strangling her. He doesn't want any screams getting out there. And then what you see is that she's been sitting on a gun this whole time and she gets the drop on him and shoots him right through the shoulder. And this is a part where I don't think it's a fault. I might have to have a little bit of help kind of understanding it. She doesn't him away right she shoots him once has a moment of hesitation meaning that there maybe was something there in her that she works you know indirectly she didn't have the guts or whatever to kill somebody that directly maybe there is some sort of a you know feelings inside of her for him she couldn't actually kill him i I, I don't trust her i still don't trust her because and also too i i don't think he's warns Zaketti at this point doesn't he warn Zaketti after he leaves oh yeah no yeah no he he has no interaction with Zaketti coming into this so I I think I I start wondering like well maybe I'm not gonna kill him maybe I'll have him kill him when he walks in well that's the thing it's like I it's not a wrong moment 
I'm all for this. It's just, I don't know what she, her motive is. And she can't really even explain it herself. Cause in this moment she goes, I never loved you. Right. I was just using you. So it's like, it wasn't like, I don't believe her that it was like feelings for him. That's stayed her hand with shooting him again. It's just kind of like a weird, interesting moment that could have any number of valid kind of interpretations as far as I'm concerned. No, I, I, at this point though, like, I mean, I really don't trust her and I, we've seen that she, she keeps people on for as long as she thinks that they're useful. So I think at at there's something that she recognizes he still may be useful for. And that's why he doesn't, she doesn't kill him outright. Oh yeah. No, you don't give her the benefit of the doubt in this, right? At all. No. And Neff sure doesn't because he does, you know, the come here, baby. And he pulls her together only to pull the gun away from her. And there's just this neat moment where she goes, you can see it in her face. Oh no, the gun's pointed against my stomach. And he pops her a couple times and just, he kills her, right? Pretty coldly just puts her down. And I think she's thinking at that point that she does, that he doesn't have it in him to actually do it. And she's oh, you can see guard. it. Oh no. Yeah. You can see it when the gun goes to her gut. She does not, she didn't see that coming. Right. And it's like, you get that little bit of a satisfaction to it. So he's shot leaking. He starts to leave. And then Zaketti and whatever his role in this would have been is coming up. And I guess this is a bit of the guilt that comes in is that he warns him of like, Hey, don't go in yeah, there. Cause I Nothing mean, this, good's going to come from that. I was going to say this, this shows that, I mean, we've been seeing this throughout the film, but this shows that, you know, Fred McMurray still has some decent amount of humanity left because if he wanted to, he could have let, uh, Zichetti go in there and let the police find him over Phyllis's dead body. Oh yeah. This is the guilt of, you know, that's it. Uh, I can't keep this going. You know, I think I'm, I've been bested. I think he, he knows he lost and that's why he went to go and confess to keys here. And, you know, presently what's happening is, he knew keys would have gotten him. It was just a matter of time. So it's like, why bother bringing more people down in this? He also cares for Lola. Mm-hmm. So if Zaketti isn't kind of mollified in this, like she could still be at risk in this. But yeah, he pulls her, he pulls him over and they had, you know, Zaketti's still every bit the asshole he ever was uh, and goes here, take this nickel, take this dime or whatever, call Lola. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't like that, but whatever. So then he peels off. We get to the office where he starts the dictaphone. You find out that basically Keys has been behind him for some indeterminate length of time. Heard enough to know what it is. And it's just like Robinson through this part. It's just, again, this is what I was saying. The humanity here of him just being really hurt, mm-hmm. being kind of surprised by this, you know, just like, oh, it, heartbreaking seeing this you know friendship fall apart right so you know uh, neff is like i'm fine i'm gonna make it to mexico just like give me a head start he's like you're not gonna get anywhere you're leaking everywhere you won't even get to the elevators neff is like just watch it he heads out collapses at the doors you see finally the kicker of like neff can't light his own cigarette keys does that awesome you know striking with the yeah. thumb thing like never in a million years am i manly enough to actually be able to no, do that absolutely right? no. not 
Oh, I burnt my fingers. Right. And he does that. And they sit there just kind of silently waiting for the ambulance. And that is the reshot ending because the original ending, which are our production stills of again, it's Neff in the gas chamber with keys watching him be executed. That was filmed and completed, but it was deemed way too dark. And I think also this is a much more rightful ending. I like I was going to say I like this ending much better. Oh, yeah. No. And um, an amazing improvement over the book. Once again, indulge me. In the book, more or less kind of the same thing. There's a whole bunch of extra rigmarole with Zaketi was actually investigating all these other murders. Who could give a crap? But anyhow, it's all come to light. The company, the insurance company. Uh, oh, and all, you know, all this stuff. Basically, he shot. She is kind of captured. They arranged, they kind of cover all of it up. Keys and them agree like, hey, let's send Neff on just a boat to Mexico. Let them go off and live together. Phyllis and Neff, different character names, by the way, in the book. And they find out, oh, shit, we're on the same boat together. And then they decide at midnight they're going to have mutual suicide and jump off the boat as they both are just irredeemable. And I'm like. I don't think that makes any sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, the um, the movie ending is so much more tonally correct, kind of wraps it all up. Also, very satisfying with the code of the bad guys all getting caught. Like, I didn't feel well, yeah, that, but that it, was but at least out of place it, it, at all. But compared to the original shot ending, I mean, it gives more time to close that character arc between Keys and Neff because we already we don't need to see him you know, caught by the police or put to death. No. We know that's going to happen eventually. I, I want to see how this character arc resolves. Oh, yeah. And I want to hope that just, you know, I want to think he didn't die at that thing because I want them to have some sort of a relationship after. I like these characters so much that I want the universe to continue a little bit more, even if it is him in prison. And I was he's say, having because, some be, version of a relationship be, because we don't see that the police catch up to him. We, we don't have to uh, do the Hayes code thing of he must die on screen so we can write our own uh, uh, fiction that he got, you know, life in prison. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I just think it has such like a tonally great ending. The music, the very, you know, great music uh, swells up and it's just leaves you with what I think. Matt, I'll let you definitely weigh in, but I think one of the absolute top greatest films of all time, I think for all intents and purposes, all but flawless, uh, like the minor tweaks I had are, aren't takeaways. It's just like, oh, just kind of noted things I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of, but right. hardly are not a detriment to it. Stone Cold Classic, absolutely. I think it's up there for what it's worth with like 2001 is <laughs> like greatest movies of all time. I think it absolutely 100% stands the test of time. It's an incredibly important movie, incredibly entertaining. Fred McMurray is wildly out of character for what he normally does. Yeah, he's usually and, like a comedy guy. Or and like that's in, what I know him from. And an inspired casting, by the way. Um, yeah, because he can play. He played that wise guy thing and then half of the movie through he just drops that and he's now kind of down to business scared paranoid kind of covers all that which right. is great stuff by the way did you ever read the the trivia of the the first person they went to was what was it george raft uh an actor no, who I didn't. is like he has 
a section on Wikipedia dedicated to all the huge movies that he passed up. He passed up about (laughs) like literally about six movies that Humphrey Bogart ended up taking, including the Maltese Falcon, including Double Indemnity and um, High Sierra. You go through, it's like the Wikipedia has like 20, 25 movies that he famously passed up and didn't want to be the lead on. Like and they the, were all the trivia, like classics. Oh, tons and tons of names ones. Like he was replaced by Humphrey Bogart, Ronald Reagan, Fred McMurray twice. Right. Uh, Gene Raymond, like just tons and tons of things. He's like a guy that would have been in like a well-known name. Um, the story apparently is Billy Wilder had to sit him down and George Raft is illiterate. So he couldn't read the script. So Billy Wilder's like, like reading it to him, walking it through beat by beat. And George Raft goes, all right, get to the lapel scene. And Wilder's like, huh? What? The lapel scene. Get to the lapel scene. And Wilder's like, what in the hell are you talking about? He's the lapel scene where the guy opens up the lapel on his coat and reveals that he's a cop and there's a badge under it the whole time. And Billy Wilder's like, you're dumb as a brick. (laughs) That's not that's not what this movie's about. And Raft turned it down, obviously for the best complete misunderstanding of what the movie would be. And for what it's worth, like the Raft, the actor, if you watch him in movies, he's like inherently unlikable and kind of like gross. I always think it's like, that's not what you would have wanted in this. Anyhow, a little bit of trivia in the alternate universe. This could have been a hell of a lot worse, (laughs) Matt. That was all my final thoughts. What are your final thoughts on? I, I really wish I could add something smart to what you said, but like I, I agree with everything. It stands the test of time. It's one of the best movies we reviewed for this show, and I, I'll definitely watch it again. In fact, I, oh, I was texting, yeah. I was texting my mom that I was about to watch this for the show, and she's like, "That movie's fantastic. You're going to absolutely love it." Um, yeah, I don't know how anyone wouldn't. Right. I mean, it, it, it's not slow in the slightest. Like, it's it's wonderful. I, I just don't get it's it. Great. It's like super modern. Right. I mean, I would. Uh, it's hard for me to compare it to a movie like 2001, although I, I get what you're saying in, in the sense that it's a movie that doesn't have any flaws, but it is damn good and it deserves oh. to be a stone cold classic. I go back. I literally go back and forth. I mentioned this when we were picking this movie, depending on whatever I watched most recently. I'm like, ah, that's the best movie ever made because it's perfection for what it's trying to do. Right. Just absolute perfection. Right. And just being wildly entertaining at the same time. So. All right. Should we tie that off, Matt, and set yes. our sights to August? All right. So I had a lot of notable movies you have a different kind of theme this uh, month with some reoccurring actors, but then also another Stone Cold classic. So your choices, Matt, for August are from 1972, starring Paul Newman. Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. A self-appointed judge claims uh, or cleans up a corrupt Western town twice. John Huston, uh, directed, by the way. Western. Then 1933's starring William Powell. Success corrupts a smooth talking lawyer. We have a lot of judges, a lot of like weird intersecting themes you forgot, in your options. You forgot, to, 
You forgot to mention the movie's name. It's Lawyer Man, oh, which is Lawyer just Man. like, which is like, that sounds like a really bad superhero name. Yeah, but. I buried that one. I'm like, oh, Matt, this one's for you. Lawyer Man, starring William Powell, by the way, one of our, you know, somebody I think we kind of really enjoyed on the show. Yeah. Then 1962, Sweet Bird of Youth, starring Paul Newman. Uh, adaptation of Tennessee Williams' play about a young man dreaming of stardom who meets up with a has-been movie star and travels with her to his small hometown to find the girl he left behind and pregnant only to be away, uh, only to be awaited by her father. Sometimes TCM goes a little crazy with their very uh, verbose um, descriptions. Next is 1941's The Maltese Falcon just mentioned could have been a George Raft film, but no, it's starring Humphrey Bogart. Hard-boiled detective Sam Spade gets caught up in the murderous search for a priceless statue. Also John Huston. August must be a themed uh, month because the final selection is another Paul Newman joint 1963's The Prize. An American Nobel Prize winner winner gets mixed up with spies when he travels to Stockholm to collect his award. All also right. co-starring so, Edward G. Robinson. Oh, yep. <laughs> True. So to <laughs> summarize, what was that? Three Paul Newman movies, a, a Humphrey Bogart movie, two John Huston movies, right? A William Powell one, Lawyer Man, couple uh, convergent legal stories here. Very interesting, weird randomness of the random generator. Didn't do you dirty. You got some interesting things in here. So, man, oh, sure. walk us through what your thought process here is. I, I, I'll go broad. I like me some Paul Newman. I'm hoping we're going to get a Paul Newman flick, but I won't be disappointed with Maltese Falcon. That movie is awesome. Also, of course, I, I do like me some Paul Newman, but I got to say double indemnity whetted my appetite for mystery and suspense. So we're doing Maltese Falcon. I've never seen it always. It's another one I've always wanted what? to see. And I don't think I've, I don't think I need to say much more than that because I we clearly love, you know, this is going to become the summer of film noir and I'm totally okay with that. Oh, yeah. No, no issues there. Uh, yeah, we're cleaning up some of your uh, gaps here uh, Matt. we have uh, this movie. Peter Laurie's awesome in it. Um, oh, who's the fat man? I, I forget. Uh, but just fantastic. Uh, Sydney Greenstreet, Sydney Greenstreet. Oh, my fucking God. Do I love G- <laughs> Greenstreet in this movie? Um, yes. I can't wait for this one. This one will be fantastic. So, all right, there we go. I, I do I have the date for it? Ah, yeah. Uh, August 27th, 10 PM showing, you know, it's a good one when you're doing like those nice primetime showings, right? Yeah. So there you go. We rambled, we raved, we covered a lot of ground in double indemnity, but the conversation can continue. Check us out over our, you know, Drop us a line at tcmchallenge at gmail.com. We can also be found on Facebook at TCM Challenge. You know, all that Twitter nonsense? Screw that. Come find me on threads I'm going to go with until that <laughs> picks up or dies. Pro Sub-Zero, same thing over there. Movies, random nonsense. Trying to get on early with that one to get the fun going. I was going to say, what is this Twitter? Because now it, I, I believe you're talking about X. 
Yeah, I'm uh, not gonna. <laughs> no, I'm not playing those games. Oh yeah, by the way, Matt, I'll put this on the air. I'm not direct messaging you on Twitter anymore to set up the show. We're taking that over to a different platform somewhere. Okay. So be on the lookout for my messages somewhere else. All right. Well, I, I'm also on Threads, and I'm still on. I'm not gonna call it X. It's still it's Twitter. Fuck Elon Musk. Um, mm-hmm. But you can find me at both places talking about pretty much anything. Let it, let me let us know what your favorite film noir is. You know, I've had such a fun time with this movie. We're continuing the theme next month. It's going to be great. It's, just, it's the summer of film noir at M Hansen 0207. Oh, I went through and put on my letterbox all the uh, watch list of modern noirs, L.A. Confidential. You know, I went down the list and I guess I have to buy the Maltese Falcon now book. Uh, to do with my prep work on that one. And there's also multiple versions of that movie floating around or, you know, an older version uh, prior to the John Houston one. So I might have to really do the homework here. Yep. But there you go. So everyone stay tuned, do your homework, watch the Maltese Falcon and see you next month. I'm Matt in Buffalo. And this is Matt in Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us on this month's edition of the TCM challenge where we're not smarter. We're just a little taller. Thank you.